Last time, when Lester Eubanks escaped from an Ohio prison, the one-time death row inmate seemed to just disappear. We checked the computer to make sure that he was entered as a wanted fugitive, and he wasn't even entered in the computer as an escaped felon, any type of crime. And when the manhunt resumed, some of Lester's relatives suggested the U.S. Marshals were wasting their time. You're looking for this dude, and he's been gone for, what, 40 years? And it's like, you haven't found him yet. What the hell makes you think you're going to find him? I'm Sunny Hostin from ABC News. This is Have You Seen This Man? By the looks of it, Lester Eubanks was thriving in Los Angeles, but police were hitting dead ends and growing increasingly frustrated. They just weren't sure. Were there members of Lester's family who were in the dark about his whereabouts, or were there some who knew more and were engaged in a conspiracy of silence, all to protect him? Police weren't the only ones who wanted to know. Here's ABC News senior investigative reporter Matthew Moss. Those most distraught by Lester's disappearance, understandably, were the relatives of his young victim, middle school student Mary Ellen Diener. Her family carried on in Mansfield, Ohio, bumping into members of the Eubanks family in church and around town, always wondering if they knew where he was. One day in the early 90s, Mary Ellen's sister, Myrtle Carter, had had enough. She wrote a letter that appeared in the local paper under the headline, Killer Still Free. We asked her to read it for us. Excuse me. You don't know me, but you know of my sister, Mary Ellen Diener. She is a very bright and beautiful young girl who loved life as we all do at the tender age of 14. But someone who had total disregard for another life, decided to end hers. She is no longer with us in the physical sense, but as long as her convicted murderer is free, her soul cannot be at rest. Please, if you have any consideration for another person, consider this. We have waited long enough for someone to tell somebody the truth regarding the whereabouts of your convicted murderer, relative Lester Eubanks. I understand it may be hard to turn in someone you love to the authorities, but think of us for once. Assist in Lester Eubanks getting what he has avoided for so long. He has had 48 years. She only had 14. It's not fair. Myrtle L. Carter, Mansfield. David Messmore was a Mansfield detective working the case. He had encouraged Myrtle to write to the paper. He thought if there were members of Lester's family who knew where he was hiding, surely this appeal would persuade them to help. It was heartfelt, and and it was very, uh, very deep down from inside. And and if that didn't, uh, probably nothing would would help. Uh, But somewhere along the line, somebody has to have a conscience. When the letter went unanswered, 
his suspicions only grew. I know there's people in town somewhere that probably know something. Uh, they, they know the family. Uh, they may have heard something that would be uh, of some help in locating him. But they're either afraid to or they refuse to. But I think they're probably afraid of, of what may happen to them. Like many of the police who have tracked the case, David Messmore believes Lester has maintained his connection to Ohio somehow. Do you think he's been back? Oh, I think he has, yeah. I have, uh, there were rumors, but no actual evidence, and nobody actually witnessed it, but there were rumors that he had returned to see his father once in a while. Lester's father had always drawn the most attention from authorities, but in 2012, when he died, law enforcement began to explore the possibility that there were other relatives of Lester's who might know more than they let on. Some of that fresh attention fell onto Lester's older brother, Clarence, and it was unwelcome. Clarence lives in a tight-knit working-class section of Columbus. He's had a long career as a postal carrier, and there's nothing that he did that we're aware of to generate suspicion, other than his steadfast refusal to speak with police about his brother Lester. I wanted to see if Clarence would speak with me. After he declined to answer my calls, I decided to visit his house and was greeted at the door by his adult stepson, Thomas. Hi. Hi. I'm looking for Mr. Eubanks. Have I got I'm the I'm sorry. No, you got the right house, but he's not home. Thomas had a goatee and was wearing a blue work shirt from a roofing company. It was a warm afternoon. One neighbor was sunning herself on a lawn chair in her driveway. Thomas had a beer in one hand, and he was walking me down the driveway, away from the house, asking why I had come. So we've been trying to work on this story about Lester. I know it's been going on for years and years and years. And I don't want to... Thomas said his father had no idea where Lester was. But he said the manhunt and the suspicion it brought to his doorstep had been tough on his family. As Clarence's stepson, Thomas is not related to Lester by blood but he considers Lester his uncle. Police come over here and roused us up in the middle of the night. Shining lights and had us all out there. I come outside, my dad was handcuffed in the backyard. And I I, I was bored. I don't know what the hell is going on. This had happened just a few years ago. Police said it was in response to a tip that Lester may have been hiding there. And it wasn't the first time. Walk me through how that happened. So it's the middle of the night, yeah. just a regular night. I'm, I'm sleeping. And then what happens? My door opened and a big bright light. You know, police, you know. They're come on your... out with your hands up. I'm like, what the hell? You so they're in your house already? Yeah. yeah, they were in. Evidently they rousted. I guess they knocked on the door or something and got my dad's attention or something. But when I come out, he was already in handcuffs in the backyard, and I walked out on the back porch, and there was guys with M16s and standing around. I'm like, are you kidding me? And what did they say? Thomas kept me down on the sidewalk as he spoke. He said he considered the ongoing search for his Uncle Lester a waste of time. My honest opinion right now would be to say that it's an unworthy effort. You know, I think... I don't know... If yeah, <laughs> I just think 
after 40 years or whatever, or 30 years, or um, what are you going to do? Catch him and spend a million dollars trying to prosecute him and put him in jail? Or I, I have no idea. I have no idea. I asked if he thought Lester was still alive. If I had to guess, the Eubanks live a long time, so I, I, I don't know. Thomas told me he would call his dad and see if he'd talk to me about Lester. But then, just about ten minutes after I had left his house, he called back while I was in the car. He had spoken to Clarence, who apparently felt he had already said too much. You know what? You me up. Oh. I'm sorry to hear that, Tom. What do you mean? He said, I should have said nothing. It's because he, we don't talk about it because, you know, and I ain't saying no more about it. Thomas suddenly seemed very distressed. Well, I just wanted to let you know that I wouldn't bother calling my dad because he ain't going to give me While it was clear that many of Lester's relatives were not helping police in their search, not all of them were resistant to talking about him. Sometimes, those conversations offered clues about Lester's life on the run. One recurring theme was Lester's passion for art. We heard about this from several people who felt a kinship to Lester, like his brother John, whom we spoke with by phone. He lives in Atlanta. Maybe there's not a lot of talk about it, but if you check into it, that once my brother got got into prison, um, he became an artist. In fact, he was ranked the best uh, prisoner artist in the United States. I mean, he could paint like um, Vincent Van Gogh. That's how good he was. Wow. It's true Lester was recognized for his artistic skill while in prison. Some of the few photos of Lester from that time show him exhibiting paintings at an art show for inmates. In one, he's seated on a cot in his cramped cell at the Ohio State Penitentiary, with a canvas propped on his knees, a brush in his hand. The partially painted portrait was of a woman. We were later told it was Kay Banks the same woman who took him into her home when he escaped. Kay's son, Daryl, told us when Lester arrived in L.A., art was a big part of his life. Have a pad and a pencil, and he would always be drawing stuff. And, you know, the, the, the portrait aspect that he would do of my mom, and I think he did one of me at one time, and, you know, just like some landscaping, stuff like that, and, you know, scenes and just things like that. Yeah, I mean, it was it was really cool. I, I at that time, I couldn't do it. I hadn't developed that yet. Do you know if he sold any artwork? I mean, could we find his artwork? Do you think out somewhere that that in a gallery or sold or? I don't know. Um, I'm sure he sold some of it. Um, I know he did, but to whom? I, I couldn't tell you. I have no idea. In Los Angeles. Members of the Fugitive Task Force began hearing that, too, that Lester had turned his passion into a source of income. Tim Connor helped that hunt back in the 1990s. He fancied himself uh, a fairly prolific artist. Um, in, uh, he was a painter, actually. Um, 
portrait and, and landscape and oils and, and different things. They considered the possibility that Lester had become one of those guys on Hollywood Boulevard who sketches tourists for money. They looked for him in galleries and artist colonies. And uh, we thought that if he was going to find a community to mingle into, um, that he would still be able to, to, to engage in the, in the arts and still uh, be able to, to have kind of that outlet for himself that another art community or another place where the arts were, were prevalent might be an area that he might go to. We had heard about tips that Lester, using the name Vic Young, had become friendly with members of the band Earth, Wind & Fire. At one point, police tried to ask the band about something they had heard, that Lester may have painted an album cover for the group. We tried repeatedly to find the band's frontman, Verdine White, but the publicist said questions about Lester and the band's album art from the 1970s did not have any, quote, direct relation to the founders or principal members of the band in any way. In his email to me, he added that the band's, quote, historic musical legacy is one of inspiration and positive purpose. I had trouble shaking the notion that paintings by Lester might be out there, hanging on the walls of some unsuspecting tourist or art enthusiast. Back in Ohio, this topic came up when my colleague Alex Hosenball and I were chatting with the minister and civil rights lawyer, James Banks. He's not related to Lester, but he used to be close friends with Lester's father, and he's maintained contact with several of Lester's brothers and sisters over the years. I was curious if in all those years he'd ever seen paintings by Lester, maybe hanging in the home of Lester's father. And he's never showed any pictures to me when I was there or okay. that there, there were any paintings or anything. I was really surprised. When James I... Banks was seated by the fireplace in a plush easy chair. Just then, he leaned forward and pointed up to the wall in his living room. You see that picture right there? Yeah. Okay. I hadn't noticed it when I walked in. There was a large oil painting in an ornate frame, a portrait of him and his wife. They were painted standing side by side. He had salty hair and wore a clerical collar. He looked serious. His wife smiled warmly, a gold cross hanging from a chain around her neck. That painting, James Banks told me, was a gift. From Mose Eubanks, Lester's father. Mose had told him an inmate he knew had painted it from a photograph. The signature in the corner of the painting reads... D. Hale. But uh, I didn't see him paint it. You know, the kid that took credit for it, but I knew him personally. Him and Bose were like this, so I have no idea as to the authenticity. <laughs> you think Lester could have painted that? I don't know. You know, I don't know. You know. It turns out the U.S. Marshals had the same question. When we come back, a painting yields a clue they were not expecting. Sending the manhunt for Lester Eubanks in a new direction. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. 
Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the Roaring Twenties. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. It was late summer 2019, and I was seated in a rental car with Alex Hosenball in a leafy suburb of Columbus, Ohio. We had spent the day shadowing Deputy U.S. Marshal David Seiler, and now we were hanging back as he knocked on the door of the home of Reverend James Banks. On a past visit to this house, Seiler had also noticed an unusual painting, just as we had, and wondered if Lester could be the artist. Seiler spoke with us as he was preparing to visit the bank's house to take a closer look. So the fact that Moe's gave this person a beautiful painting, and this painting is something that we can use to, one, identify who created the painting. And if we do identify, let's say it's Lester, well, if he created that piece of art in 2008, well, that could get us, obviously, even closer to where our bad guy is at. If Lester were the artist, it would offer the first solid proof that he and his father had stayed in contact while he was on the run. And maybe more significantly, the canvas could offer clues to Lester's whereabouts at the time it was painted. The date in the corner says 2008. There could be clues uh, all over that painting, right? In terms of where the canvas was purchased or... All types of clues. All types of clues could be all over that painting. DNA, fingerprints, um, whatever somebody wrote on the back, um, whatever somebody, whoever created that, DNA, fingerprints are all over it. So with that... 
with those two elements alone, we can identify who created that, created that painting. On this quiet residential street, we watched as Siler and his partner knocked on the door and were welcomed into the home of James Banks. Then we waited. After about 20 minutes, the front door opened again and the marshals emerged. Holy smoke, they just got the painting. Siler was carrying it, wrapped in a blanket, and he placed it gently in the back of his car. A few minutes later, Alex and I spoke with him at a nearby parking lot. Siler said James Banks was more than happy to help. You know, he's a really good man. I asked, simply I asked, hey, the painting that he received from Mose Eubanks, can I take it, analyze it, see if there's fingerprints or see if the fact that there's some kind of DNA on there? And they were more than willing, absolutely, here you go. There is a name on the painting which we're going to try to identify um, as a possibility. Um, so they were more than willing to, 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 to provide us with the painting, and we'll see where that leads us. And did he give you the name of who he thought the artist was? He did. He provided the name um, a former inmate of uh, the state of Ohio. So we're going to follow up and see if we can identify who that guy is. So this is a good day. It's a great day. I was curious just what exactly a forensic team could do to determine whether Lester had painted it. I drove up to Baltimore to meet with Charles Tumosa. For years, he had headed the forensic lab for the Philadelphia police and then analyzed art for the Smithsonian, detecting forgeries and tracing artifacts. Now he's a criminology professor at the University of Baltimore. I showed him a photograph I had taken of it when I was still in James Banks' house. Hmm. Yeah, I'd have to pull that up. That's kind of interesting. That's actually a pretty good painting. Well, Um, people say that... He was intrigued. I asked him... What could we learn from a painting? I would look at where it was bought. I would look at there. There should be some indication on the canvas where it was purchased. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, that would give some indication as to uh, obviously location. On the back, usually there's a firm, either the firm that made it or the firm that sold it. That made the canvas. He wanted to know if it was painted with oil. A lot of artists use their fingers, and if there's a fingerprint on that thing, it's as good as gold. And if Lester handled the painting, maybe even DNA. I was going to ask you that. What about uh, skin cells? or that's, that's a possibility. Okay, again, it depends on how many people handle it. Does the paint itself hold on to any of that stuff? Does it get, like, like you think you, like a, a mosquito in amber or whatever, does a skin cell get trapped in the wet paint in some way? Yeah, if you could find it, if nobody's handled it or messed with it in some way. Yeah, I would. If I could see it, if I saw a thumbprint, I might go with that. Sure, why not? But he said the most important first step was to try and determine if there was indeed a person who matched the signature in the bottom corner of the painting, a D. Hale. If we could identify him, the professor said, maybe he could answer the most important question. Was D. Hale really... Lester Eubanks. With the mystery figure D. Hale 
added to his whiteboard, Seiler continued to expand his search for relatives of Lester's who might know more and be unafraid to talk. The U.S. Marshals had offered a $25,000 reward for information about Lester, and the potential windfall figured prominently into Seiler's conversations with Lester's family. Still, this was no easy task, as Seiler told me over the phone. You really spent a lot of time trying to understand the dimensions of the Eubanks family. It's not an easy family to understand, I guess. Um, this is a rather large family. Um, spans several states, spans across the country. And um, the ability to get one of those individuals to help us out, just, it hasn't been successful in 45 years. Seiler even began to sense a pattern when he interviewed relatives of Lester's. It was as if they were expecting him, and they knew just what to say and what not to say. He wondered if some of them might be alerting others that he was on the hunt. It seems wherever we are, um, they're quick to know. Um, They pass the information quickly that the marshals are in the area doing interviews. Over the summer, though, Seiler was starting to see cracks in that network. He began speaking with one man in particular who had alleged that years ago in the 60s, Lester met his mother in church, pulled her into an alley, and raped her. The man believes he was the product of that alleged assault. This all happened before the murder of Mary Ellen, and later, after Lester was sent off to prison, the Eubanks family began reaching out to him when he was still just a boy. I wanted to meet this man myself, but he was very difficult to get a hold of. At one point, we had agreed to meet at a grocery store near his house, but he never showed up. A few weeks later, we decided to try again, this time at a hotel. He arrived wearing sunglasses and a Pittsburgh Steelers hat. Our agreement was that we wouldn't use his name and we would disguise his voice. He said he remains fearful of the Eubanks family. Talking about Lester to strangers is a risk. We're not going to use your name, but we'll have to figure out how to refer to you. Uh, We'll just call you Sir. How about that? That sir works. All right. I asked the man... When did he first become aware that his biological father might be Lester Eubanks? He said Lester's father, Mose, brought it up frequently from the time he was a boy. I do recall him saying, you know who your father is. I said, yeah, I know who my father is. Uh, My family told me, you know, Lester Eubanks. And what did that mean to you? Did you have a sense of who he was or where he was? Uh, I have no idea. I didn't have no sense of where he was or who he was. The Eubanks family never discussed with this man whether they believed Lester had assaulted his mother. There was clearly some distance between him and the Eubanks family, but they continued to reach out. He said one of Lester's relatives even occasionally floated the idea he might one day meet his biological father. She said, she said, she would always say, well, you'll, you'll meet him one sometime or another. He said he learned about Lester mostly from his mother. She was always reluctant to talk about him, 
and almost never talked about what Lester had done to her, an attack that had apparently occurred in 1964, right behind the church when she was just a teenager. I mean, like I said, I, I hate the fact that what he, what he did to my mother, you know, I really do. I asked him what he would say to Lester if he happened to be listening to this. And I was struck by the contrast to the response I got to this same question from Daryl Banks Jr., the architect in Vietnam who considered Lester a kind of mentor. When I talked to Daryl, he didn't blame Lester for embarking on his flight from justice or call for him to return. But this man felt differently. He said he would advise Lester to stop running. All I can, all I can tell him is... You know, I, I, I suggest you just 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 give up and, and turn yourself in. You know. It was interesting to meet him, this man who seemed to have such a tangible connection to Lester, but he didn't appear to know anything that would help the marshals catch Lester. If there were members of the family who knew more they still weren't talking. And yet, those pursuing Lester were more convinced than ever they needed someone from within that tight-lipped circle, someone to answer the most basic questions about Lester's life on the run. And some of those answers would come from a surprising place. There was one additional avenue we hadn't explored in the search for Lester Eubanks, DNA. And if this man was indeed the biological son of Lester Eubanks, I began to wonder if his DNA could play a role in catching his father. Next time, we find out if the man we met really is Lester's biological son and see if his DNA will help us find other people related to Lester, people who were born during his time on the run. That takes care of Ancestry.com and that's four samples. And the sister of the young girl killed by Lester is surprised by an outpouring of support. We've compiled photos of Lester Eubanks, including an age progression sketch showing what the U.S. Marshals believe he may look like today on abcnews.com slash this man. You can also find a lot of additional content on the case there, and we'll be updating the page as news warrants. If you have seen Lester Eubanks or have any information about his whereabouts, you can provide your tip directly to the U.S. Marshals at 1-866-4-WANTED. That's 1-866-4926833. If you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast and give us a rating and a review. Have You Seen This Man is a production of the ABC News Investigative Unit and ABC Audio. Written and reported by senior investigative producer Matthew Moss. Additional reporting by producer Alex Hosenball and associate producer Jin Sol Jung. Production by Susie Liu. Special thanks to Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, and Stacia Dashishku. Cindy Galley is our chief of investigative projects. Chris Vlasto is senior executive producer. I'm Sunny Hostin. 
Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.